Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning in to our series, Resolve, based out of our study on the book of Daniel. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was certainly considered the best preacher over the last hundred years. He was a physician. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a physician, um, a successful physician, and then he felt called to the ministry, and he worked alongside um, a very famous preacher, um, Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, um, at Westminster Chapel. And when Dr. G. Campbell Morgan retired, um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones took over um, Westminster Chapel and pastored that congregation for 30 years. And he kind of revived what's called expository preaching. He was passionate about teaching the Bible in a day where there weren't many pastors really putting a lot of effort in teaching the Word. He, he taught book by book, kind of line by line, very systematically and thoroughly. But he had this thing about him. He was very articulate and very pointed. Like every word he spoke felt like you were just being having heart surgery. He was just cutting you to pieces. Because of his kind of meticulous, thorough style, he's become somewhat of a theological authority. He was reformed doctrinally. He was a Calvinist. Um, but many said that he combined the fire of Methodism with the careful teaching of the word of the reformed tradition. And it's funny to listen to theological debates today. Not that, you know, you care, but, um, some of you, I know some of you care. It's funny. My wife doesn't care as well. I say that she, she's like, quit talking now. Um, um, it's funny to listen to theological debates because they lobby his name around Dr. Jones, Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones to try to support their arguments. And there was a particularly funny, um, debate over the past five years where some people came out against um, our position that we believe that the gifts of the Spirit are still in operation today and that God still works miraculously today. Um, they came out, that's the, the opposite of that is called cessationism. Cessationists believe that God quit moving in the ways in which he moved in the Scripture, either at the death of John the Apostle or at the conclusion of the canon. We don't believe that. We don't find that in Scripture, and we particularly don't find that in history. There's no historical um evidence that God quit moving, and rather, it's quite opposite. St. Augustine, for instance, believed um, kind of a cessationist view for most of his life until um, he experienced God doing some crazy stuff And in the later years of his life. So St. Augustine, we're talking about AD 400. In the later years of his life, he said he, was, he witnessed something like 75 healings. Um, so not scripturally supported nor historically supported, but this conference that came out, um, they kept lobbying Dr. Jones' name around in support of their position, um, but it seems that they believed just because he was a Calvinist that he was also a cessationist, and he wasn't. And it was really funny as people started to read him because he didn't believe what they were teaching at all. They were just throwing his name, trying to grab some authority. I love to listen to him over the years. He preaches with a straightforward intensity, man. He preached a series of sermons called Spiritual Depression. And that's kind of what I want to talk to you about today is... Um, I want to read to you a, a couple excerpts from his sermon series called Spiritual Depression. He says, commenting on Psalm 42, he says this, Have you ever realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody's talking. Who is talking to you? He says, yourself is talking to you. Now this man, in Psalm 42, 
Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asked. And his soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I'll speak to you now. He goes on to say, Professor Whitehead defined religion thus. Religion is what a man does with his own solitude. You and I, in the final analysis, are what we are when we are alone. You and I, in the final analysis, are what we are when we are alone. He says, Paul had a love for God that rendered him independent of all that was happening to him. Whatever was happening, he said, I've learned to be content. And he made this comment, and this is the comment that I think I want to focus on today. I want you to consider today. It's kind of shocking at your first read. It says this. He made this comment on several occasions. He says, a discouraged church does not need encouragement. It needs doctrine. A discouraged church does not need encouragement. It needs doctrine. He's saying that in your moments of crisis, in your moments of great anxiety and fear, you don't need someone to pat you on the back and nurture you, although that may make you feel better. But he's saying in your moments of greatest crisis, in your moments of greatest encouragement, in your moments of greatest fear, what you need to remember is who it is that you serve. What you need is your doctrine to be sure. He comments on the disciples' anxiety during that great storm. You remember when Jesus is asleep in the bottom of the boat. They say to Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? They're frantic. And they're still not fully aware just who it is who's in the boat with them. And we are learning. Some of us are slower than others. And I'm probably on the slower Spectrum, But we are learning not to live in a state of agitation. We are learning not to live gripped by fear. We are learning not to live dominated by anxiety, terror, alarmed, frantic. Because we're beginning to understand who's in our boat. And understanding just who it is in your boat, well, that's a doctrinal matter. And one of the most silly comments we're making in our day and age is that doctrine doesn't matter. Doctrine does matter when you find yourself in a storm. Knowing who it is in your boat, that's a doctrinal matter. And this week, as we read our text, we'll find Daniel again in crisis, Nebuchadnezzar demanding that not only his dream be interpreted, but he's demanding that that the wise men of the day tell Nebuchadnezzar what his dream is. And the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans. Remember that Nebuchadnezzar is conquering the known world. He is completely ransacking all of the known world. And he is grabbing all of their most bright-minded young men. And so in Nebuchadnezzar's presence, he has enchanters, magicians, Chaldeans, all the smartest and wisest. They know all the little rituals and all the chants. They know all the way to interpret the dreams. All the way to, to, to... They know it all. But in this moment, they totally clam up. But the scripture tells us that Daniel, in this moment when 
Nebuchadnezzar has issued this decree that if the wise men cannot tell me my dream, I will have all of their heads. And we know from history that this was not a strange decree. And we know from history that this was sure to happen. So when Nebuchadnezzar is not lobbying this threat, Nebuchadnezzar means what he says. The axe is laid to your neck. If you cannot tell me my dream, I will have your head. And all of the world's finest magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, they all choke. They clam up. Haley and I, and I think Hannah was with us, we were getting ready for church one Sunday morning, and Olivia was maybe eight months old. She rolled off the bed, and she hit her head, and I picked her up, and her eyes rolled in the back of her head. She she passed out for a minute, and she was, you know, she's a baby. And so I looked at Haley, and I said, grab your shoes, grab your phone, grab your wallet, meet me in the car. I'm going to put the baby in the car, and we're going to go to the ER. We get in the car, and Haley says, I don't know where the hospital is. I Google mapped this before when I was preparing my sermon because I wanted you guys to know I was telling the truth. We live two miles from the hospital, okay? It's around the corner. It's right there. She said, I don't know where the hospital is. I said, I know where the hospital is. We're going to be okay. I get to the hospital door, and I let Haley out at the door with the baby. The girl's got no shoes on. She got no phone. She got no wallet. She ain't got nothing. Just totally pulling her hair out, running to the door. I had to go home and get the girl her shoes. She was looking, she, she was looking like she wanted to Walmart to get her groceries, if you know what I'm saying. Daniel's told the king is coming for his head. He's facing execution and sure execution quickly. But Daniel remembered his shoes. He got his wallet and his cell phone. And with composure, he makes his petition to Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm suggesting this morning that he keeps his composure because he knows who's in the boat with him. He's grounded in his doctrine. The difference between Nebuchadnezzar, or difference between Daniel and all the servants of Nebuchadnezzar is a doctrinal difference. It's a doctrinal difference. So let's read our passage this morning. Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. And then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, they be summoned to tell the king his dream. And so they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. The language here is specific, and all commentators agree. What's happening here is Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He woke up in fear and in terror, but he can't quite remember the dream. You know how that happens? He had a dream, but he doesn't know the dream. Then the Chaldean said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb for limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth. 
who can meet the king's demand. For no great or powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is too difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry, very furious, and he commanded all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. And so the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. And this is the past, this is the line I want us to focus in on this morning. Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is this decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. Daniel went in. He requested to the king to appoint a time that he might show the interpretation. The scripture says Daniel replies with prudence and discretion. That Hebrew is a little challenging to translate into English. The NASB translated prudence and discernment. The King James Version translated, he replied with counsel and with wisdom. So the question today is, why is it that Daniel is able to keep his head on his shoulders in a moment where his life is threatened? I'm trying to find my bug out bag. Somebody's trying to find that wine press that Gideon hides in. The Chaldeans, the magicians, the sorcerers, all the wise men totally choke, totally clam up. They have no answer, no resolve, no peace, but Daniel is calm, collective, responds with wisdom and discernment. My first point is this. Daniel's first doctrinal conviction conviction that's radically different from the culture he's found himself in is this. There is one true God. His first doctrinal conviction that's totally different from the Chaldeans, the magicians, the enchanters, is that there is only one God. He finds himself in a culture with a plethora of gods, plenty of gods to serve and choose from. But Daniel is committed. He has conviction that there is yet one true sovereign God of the universe. We know from history, um, there's, a, there's a Babylonian text that's kept in a museum in Berlin. Um, I told you before that um, archaeologists have discovered all kind of, literally like libraries of texts from Babylon. There's a Babylonian text in Berlin that says this, If a man cannot remember a dream he saw, it means this, his God is very angry with him. His personal God is very angry with him. So we know culturally that the fact that Nebuchadnezzar could not remember this dream, he woke up in fear, meant culturally that the gods were angry with him. The magicians, the chanters, and Chaldeans respond, only the gods know your dream. And the tradition teaches that the gods are frustrated with you. The Babylonian creation myth, the the creation story that permeated Babylon at the time is called Enuma Elish, which means win on high. It's the starting words of the uh, the myth. And in the myth, Marduk leads multiple gods in a battle against a, a god named Tiamat. And Tiamat at sometimes is a god of water and at sometimes is this dragon thing. He defeats her. He splits her carcass in half and 
the, the text literally says like a shellfish, and he makes the heavens with one half of her, and he makes the earth with one half of her, and now Marduk became, becomes the chief of all the gods. The problem is that all the gods get frustrated with Marduk because they, um, they have to hold up the moon, and they have to hold up the sun, and they have to be in control of the wind, and they're mad, and so they beg him to create something else, and so he pulls the blood out of another fallen god, and from this fallen god's blood, he makes mankind to serve the frustrated, tired, manipulative, selfish gods, plethora of gods. So in the Babylonian worldview, in the enchanter's magician's mind, there are plenty of gods. These gods can grow frustrated. These gods, um, they're, they get tired. These gods are selfish. These gods fight with one another. These gods are manipulative. These gods are proud. These gods are arrogant. And humanity feels the full brunt of this chaos. So Nebuchadnezzar says, tell me my dream. And they say, only the gods know. And the answer to the question is, which god and which temple? And how could we possibly find out? They stumble and stutter. Again, the axe is laid to their head and they literally have no response. What god do they pray to? Which god knows the dream? I know you guys think I'm holy, but I've seen an episode or two of Sister Wives. And I feel bad for that man. Where I grew up, we would say, that man was hitting the crack pipe. What you doing? It's the kind of confusion polytheism creates. The kind of confusion this worldview creates. But Daniel doesn't have to go home and bite his nails. Daniel doesn't respond with anxiety. He's not confused about which God has this information. One historian by the last name of Dodd wrote on the spread of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire. He was a secular historian, but he made some really profound observations. He said this. He said, Christianity spread because of its exclusive nature. The religions, the religious tolerance that was normal in Greek and Roman practice had resulted by accumulation in a bewildering mass of alternatives. There were too many cults, too many mysteries, too many philosophies of life to choose from. You could pile on one religious insurance with another and still not feel safe. But Christianity made a clean sweep. It lifted the burden of freedom from the shoulders of the individual. One choice, one irrevocable choice, and the road of salvation was clear. And this is our faith. We believe in one eternal God, one eternal God, one God who exists in three persons. But we're not polytheists by any stretch of the imagination. There's one God, one name by which we're all saved, and we know exactly who he is. I'm not going to a palm reader anytime soon. You won't find me messing with any kind of voodoo, looking for an inner healer. I'm not going to the east to meet with a holy man. There is one God. We need to learn the difference between honoring people with different religious views without, without falling into what's called syncretism. Syncretism is absolutely where our culture is heading. Syncretism is basically when you begin to meddle multiple religions together. We laughed 10 years ago when Oprah started making claims about um, there are many paths and many ways and all gods lead to the same. We all laughed at Oprah 10 years ago, but today those are the ideas that permeate our universities. 
when, when absolute truth was dethroned and we started teaching relativism, relativism means that there is no perfect truth. Everyone gets to pick and choose what's true for them. If relativism is exalted, then polytheism comes right with it. Because if, because if relativism rules, then you get to pick which God is true for you. And then if your kids find themselves in absolute chaos and what they believe is everybody gets to pick their own God, they may, they may think, I might should try my neighbor's God with this problem because my God's not working. I don't want my kids wondering if they should be praying to anybody else other than Jesus when they experience chaos because there's one true God. One God for Daniel. His name's Yahweh. One God. We don't believe in a God. We believe in the God. We don't believe Jesus is a way. We believe he is the way. You abandon your monotheistic doctrine. The Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You abandon that and you abandon peace in moments of chaos. The church needs to hear that today. Hear it desperately. If you abandon your monotheism in moments of chaos, your kids will wonder which God to run to. There's one God, one sovereign, pure God. Second, his difference, doctrinal conviction than the magicians, the enchanters, is this, is that there is one God and that God knows the dream. One God and that God is omniscient. Psalm 147.5 says his knowledge has no limit. In Isaiah 44, God declares, who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it, set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. He says, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declare it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. There's no single piece of information that he lacks. Psalmist says he knows your words before they touch your lips. We talked about this recently, but first that should create in you a sense of security because you're already vulnerable, man. You can be as honest with God as you want to be. We have this thing in culture where we don't always want to be honest with people around us because we don't want them to know that we're struggling or that we're weak. Vulnerability is a prerequisite with God. He already knows. He already knows everything you're struggling with, everything you're going through. You can be very honest. Second, he says that he declares the end from the beginning. And he calls himself the Alpha and the Omega. The one who was and is and is to come. And he knows exactly where you are and exactly how everything's going to shake out. God is not surprised nor caught off guard by Nebuchadnezzar's demand. And God knows perfectly the dream that was provided. He knows the inner workings, the thoughts, imaginations, desires of every person who exists. God does not learn things. He knows things perfectly. And so when you find yourself in trouble and bondage, when you find yourself anxious, biting your nails, God knows. God has seen. God is not caught off guard. Some of you will walk into work on a Monday morning and we all know Monday mornings. And there's going to be a crisis and there's going to be some kind of panic. God is not caught off guard and God already knows the solution. He's seen the beginning to the end. The Babylonian gods are not omniscient. They say in in a general sense, the gods know the dream, but every god doesn't know everything. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to stab each other in the back. They wouldn't be able to have strategy and war like their texts tell us. 
the chaos of the Babylonian gods produces chaos in the hearts of their followers. But the omniscience of Yahweh produces confidence in the heart of Daniel. Confidence in the sense that he knows exactly who to go to. And he's confident that who he has to go to knows the dream. There are going to be days where you struggle. There are going to be days where you're met with complete terror and fear. Sickness may knock at your door. Financial devastation may come creeping in. But God knows. He has seen the beginning and the end. And the the resolution is already prepared. Trust him. Follow him. Don't freak out. Learn to be calm in the midst of chaos. God knows. He's seen. The third difference is they say of their gods, our gods do not dwell amongst men. Only the gods know and gods don't dwell amongst men. What are they saying? We don't have access to the gods' knowledge. They don't, they're not here. They don't live with us. But Daniel's God is omnipresent. Jeremiah 23, 24. Again, we talked about the fact that Daniel was very familiar with Jeremiah's prophecies. Says this, can, am I, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Isaiah 66, 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Deuteronomy 34, verse 6, God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And and Daniel is sure that his God fills the universe. So while God has a throne in heaven, yes, God is perfectly in this moment present with Daniel. And God has not left him nor forsaken him. And he doesn't have to get on the ground and roll in sackcloth and ashes to get God to come down from heaven. No, God fills the heavens and the earth. God is available. They say only the gods who dwell not with men know. But Daniel's God meets with him in the morning. And he meets with him in the evening. And Daniel's God walks with him through all of his struggles. And Daniel's God rejoices with him in all of his victories. The gods that are not with us, Daniel's God never leaves, never forsakes. The men of God of old knew Daniel's God. Genesis 5.24 says that Enoch walked with him and he was no more. And Moses, he spoke with him. And Abraham, he stood with him. Daniel is not in this trial alone. And you are not in your trials alone. When you face opposition, you don't face it by your own strength. It's not by strength or might, declares the Lord, by his spirit. You don't face your problems and your anxieties and your fear by your own energy or by your own wisdom. You face it by the presence of the Lord. And all the Chaldeans and all the magicians and all the enchanters, they interpret dreams through little formulas. Remember we talked last week about they would sacrifice an animal and lay out its liver and try to prophesy from the shape of the thing Daniel has no formula he doesn't say to Nebuchadnezzar let me go home and get some sticks out and rattle some pans and see if I can conjure something up our God is not a God of formulas he's a God of presence I need you to hear that this morning 
He's not a God of formulas. And for some reason, it seems to me that he doesn't like formulas because formulas become manipulative. You start saying, I jumped over the hoop and I did left and right. And now I'm going to control what God does and doesn't do. And that's not the God we serve. We don't operate by formula. We operate by presence. Daniel says they they have all their little formulas and they can try all their little things. But I have a God who's with me. You face problems and trials bathed in the presence of the Lord. If you're a believer in this room this morning, God calls your body his temple. And he intends to fill that thing up. You lean on his strength. And finally, this is my last point. Daniel doesn't panic because he knows God is able to finish what he started. The omnipotent God of the universe is absolutely sovereign over his life. Daniel could be dying today, but only if God says so. I don't think for a moment Daniel thought that God would never allow him to suffer. Why don't I think that? Because the man has already suffered. And 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 the Talmud tells us that Isaiah, who was just a couple hundred years before Daniel, prophesied his whole life and then was sawn in half. And history tells us that, that Jeremiah, remember Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, man. He was beaten. We know that from scriptural texts, but extra biblical text tells us that later in Jeremiah's life in Egypt, he was stoned. So the men of God before Daniel weren't exempt from trial and, and, and many of them experienced harsh, cruel deaths. So this could be the day that Daniel's going to die. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get to make that decision. This could be the day, yes, but it's only the day if he says so. And there will be a day when I'll eat the dust, but on that day, it'll be the day the angels of heaven are waiting to meet me. And I'm waiting for the sound of the trumpet. And so when they say to Daniel, Daniel, your head is on the chopping block. Doesn't freak. His nails aren't bleeding because he's biting the thing so low. The text says that he responds with peace, with confidence, with wisdom, with discernment. He tells Nebuchadnezzar, just give me a moment to talk with God. Give me a moment to talk with my God. And in conclusion, I just wanted to say this. As I've thought this week about the response of Daniel in this face of crisis, I've come to believe that it's totally secure in his doctrinal convictions. And I want you to be a church that begins to really, really, really love this word of God every day. Love this word of God every day. You found and ground yourself doctrinally. And I'm convicted that I really need to teach this thing to my daughters. And I'm convicted that you need to teach this to your kids and your grandkids. And I'm convicted that there may be days that come in our future that we're met with fear and anxiety, but if we will ground ourselves in the sure word of God, Jesus says the waves, the wind, the storm can come, but if your house is built on the rock, then you will not fall or tremble or shake. Are you founded on the rock this morning? Again, hear the words of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. In your discouragement, you don't need encouragement. You need your doctrine. You need to remember who God is, where he is. You need to know who's in the boat with you. 
And these doctrines we talked about this morning are plain doctrines. They're old doctrines, straightforward doctrines. But every generation, in every age, culture has attempted to dethrone them. You start hiding the word of God in your heart, man. Start burying that stuff down in there. Not for the sake of arguing with everybody who disagrees. There's a time and a place for a discussion. Not for the sake of arguing with everybody who disagrees, but for the sake of arguing with yourself. For the sake of talking back to your fear. For the sake of settling that anxiety. For the sake of resting in the storm. For the sake of walking in the peace. Jesus said, I, peace I give to you. And I don't give as the world gives. For the sake of walking in the peace that he's given to us. And I just want to close with saying this. Because God is the sole, complete, sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient God, he deserves your soul and complete devotion. Because he is the only God who is worthy of glory and honor and praise. Because he is the only God who is sovereign. Because he is the God who spoke creation into existence. Because he has revealed himself perfectly through to us through the person of Jesus. Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And what he has revealed is that he is gracious, kind, loving. He's the only God worthy. He deserves your complete devotion. Let every idol crumble. Let the idol of fear fall apart. That idol of anxiety, let that thing just fall to the ground. We need to be careful not to think too much of the demonic and allow the demonic to raise its head and somehow become equal to the power of the Holy Ghost. It ain't close, man. It's not close. Not even close. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.